1985, after graduating from the University of Pennsylvania, Paul embarked upon a journey that so many dream of taking, but where so few take that first step forward. Paul picked a business where there was no repeat business. A customer does not buy three dining room tables, they buy one, says the founder of Paul Downs Custom Conference Tables. But Paul was resilient and he kept moving the business forward to his first half million in sales with six employees a few years later. He eventually picked up his first commercial client and then more business started coming his way because Google liked an image he had put on his website in 2003. Nearly overnight, Paul went from being a local business to one servicing customers around the country. But Paul's story doesn't end like Phil Knight's, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, or Warren Buffett. Paul experienced several periods of near-fatal business failure, yet he held on because he ultimately found help from those to keep him on track. Paul started making a name for himself when he started a column for the New York Times. He started attending a local Vistage group in 2012. He's been a faithful member ever since. And who is Paul Downs? He'll tell you he's no genius. He calls himself lucky. I don't. Paul is a loving husband, a great dad, a CEO who cares about his staff and wants to see them grow. Paul Downs is the author of Boss Life, and he's our guest on this edition of CFO Bookshelf Podcast. So Bruce Reed, by the way, Bruce Reed, the amazing, remarkable, incredible, results-only CFO for PracticeLink, the top number one job board for physicians. Did I say that correctly, uh, Bruce? You did. You did. You nailed it. You, so you're, are you narcissistic? Are you saying that you nailed it? I nailed it on you being the best, the number one, the remarkable, and all that type CFO? I um, Those... <laughs> Those items uh, just totally passed me by, but the I'm sure they uh, did. The, the superlatives for Practice Link were spot on. So, what I, I want to get back to my question, or I guess I hadn't gotten to it. Let me start my question: Is your business in the market for a custom conference table? Well, you know we we believe in quality, and we do like nice things. Um, I know. Been, well, I uh, know because you're paying all that rent in downtown Clayton, Missouri. That's like Manhattan, isn't it? Nothing but the best. And if you're going to have that type of a view, you probably should be looking at it over a high quality conference table. Uh, don't know if we're don't know if we're in the purchasing uh, in purchase mode today or tomorrow. But hey, we're uh, we'll never overlook uh, opportunity to add to add quality. Can I make a suggestion? You can. When you make your next purchase for a conference table, I want you to go to Paul Downs Custom Conference Tables. I'm telling you, this stuff is brilliant. It, it looks great on a website, so I'd like to be able to even touch it, feel it. So if I'm ever in the Philadelphia area, I am going to tour uh, this facility. In fact, if you live in the Philadelphia area, I'm sure Paul would be willing to have you stop by and take a look. So I'm just saying, Bruce, when you need to buy a custom conference table, you are going to go to this website. Well, I'm looking at the website right now, and it is uh, it is amazing. They've there's just just looking at it on on screen. It's some uh, some amazing looking quality. How did you come about him? What, what's I I mean I, I see I see the beautiful tables, but 
um, you know, we're, we're a book about, con- or a, we're a show about continued learning and books and those sort of things. So what was, uh, what was it that, that, uh, how, how did you find, uh, how'd you find Paul Downs? You know, everyone likes a great book list. So, I mean, don't you do the same thing? You come across a book list, you look, don't you? You have to look. It's like someone saying, don't look at that. And what do you do? You look. Well, it's like book lists. I want to see what's on that book list. So I cannot remember where I found this book. Or, or I, well, I can't remember where I found the book list. Well, Boss Life by Paul Downs was on it. I was like, I have not heard of that. I mean, I've heard, I've heard of almost every business book that's probably been written. At least I would say books that have earned the top 200 in sales over the last 20 years. How come I don't know this book? So I looked at it. I was like, man, this looks really good. So the first thing I did was I already had like 20 books in my queue to read. So you know that I uh, one of my activities is, is walking uh, on one of my properties about four miles every night. And so I, okay, I'm going to just stop what I'm listening to and just listen to Boss Live. I then got the Kindle version and went through it. Excellent book. So that's how I came across it. And then I thought, you know, wonder, I wonder if he's available. I know this guy is very well known. He used to write uh, a blog piece for the New York Times. Maybe I'll get lucky. And I did. So that that's the story behind Paul Downs. And when we get finished with the interview, I'll explain why I think every CFO needs to be invested in books like this. Well, this uh just looking at the kind of looking at the cover and kind of looking at the description. This looks like one of those things that if you're if you're going to run something there and you're going to be involved in in your own business, be involved in small business, um looks like a looks like something that'd be valuable to to read just to, you know, some some empathy or to to feel like you're not alone. So, if uh so let's not uh let's not delay then. Let's go ahead and uh, listen to your interview with Paul Downs. Thank you, Bruce. Before we start talking about your book, Boss Life, who is Paul Downs? Yeah, not at all. And to recap for those who haven't read the book, uh, I'm talking about the intersection of my business and my personal life throughout the book, which is a record of a year in my life. And uh, it's 2012. Uh, my twins were born in 1994. So Peter was just graduating from high school and had been accepted into MIT. He's a smart kid. And uh, on the strength of that and some of the stuff that he'd put up online, he started getting job offers when he was still in high school from various dot-coms. And he got a serious offer to go out and spend a summer in San Francisco working and we decided to let him go. Um, part that I didn't really talk about too much in the book is that I have family out there. So it wasn't just like, you know, send an 18-year-old to San Francisco and hope for the best. Although people did that for hundreds and thousands of years, right? That used to be the immigrant story. You just send your kid on the ship and never hear from him again. You had a sister out there, right? I have a, I have a sister who lived quite close to him and another sister who was about 10 miles away. So there was support. And that put him on his journey uh, into the working world very early. So he ended up spending two years out there prior to going to school and worked for two companies. And the second company was acquired by GoDaddy. So he ended up having a pretty interesting set of work experiences prior to even entering college. And then he went to MIT and spent four years there. 
And in the course of that, he worked his networks there and had a bunch of other work experiences. And now uh, he's been out of school for two years and he's back on the East Coast and he is working for a company called Pipe as the lead engineer. I mean, he's really been a very accomplished person, like very impressive in ways that that I never was. And uh, he's way smarter than me. And he's had uh, the good luck to to work those connections into building a rich uh, foundation for his career. And he's a really nice guy and gets along with everybody too. So Peter has done very, very well. Henry, my autistic son, um, I think I should clarify that Autism is a is a big bucket, and right. there's people who are on the very close to normal functioning end, and then there's the far opposite end, and that's where Henry is. He is nonverbal. Uh, his IQ is so low it can't be tested. He requires constant uh, supervision. Um, he's sort of mediocre at personal care, and... Um, uh, he's also quite big. He's six five and about three hundred pounds right now, and we've gone through a lot of a lot of drama with Henry. Uh, but at the moment, he's living in a group home, uh, being cared for by a service agency that I am very close to the founders of and and on the board of an associated agency. And we also have one person that we that it works for that agency, but also works for us. Who's been with him for years is sort of like a real trusted uh, helper. And so that situation is about as good as it can be for the moment. We see him every week and uh, he's 26, just like his twin brother. And he's sort of riding the normal curve of, of mellowing out as he gets older. Uh, but people in their twenties still experience some hormonal changes and what have you. So he can, he can have a meltdown at any moment, but it's getting less and less. So um, I do have another son, too, who I barely mentioned in the book, who's 23, and he's out of college now and uh, teaching school in Nashville. And my wife and I are enjoying sort of the empty nest experience, and she's been able to concentrate on her artwork. And uh, so we're doing pretty well as a family at the moment. In the book, and I, this is pretty early on, Paul, and I'll, this is in quotes, unfortunately, I'm no business genius and I'm not rich. My story has neither tidy conclusions nor a triumphant ending. Still true today? Are those still words still true eight years, nine years later? Yeah, I don't think I'm a business genius in any way. That that the the thing that sort of got me out of be really pretty much a failure, I would say, would be uh, being starting to write for the New York Times in 2010 sort of got me in touch with the idea of networking as valuable. And my own personality is one where I'm pretty happy to just be in the corner at a party and, you know, looking at not, not interacting. So I had to really force myself to go out and start making connections. And it was those connections who have really opened my eyes to different ways to be a boss and different levels of what can be achieved and have been very helpful to me when I was stuck. I could call somebody and say, you know, how did you get out of this? Who did you use? Whatever. And it was that 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 got me on a different track. So um, 
but I'm not a genius. You know, the, I think that the the power of, of, of anybody is really multiplied when you reach out and make use of your connections. So the company has grown not only through my own efforts, but all the people who work for me. And I've grown not only through my own efforts, but all the people who've helped me. And so if just understanding my limitations, that was really the first thing. It's like get beyond that with others' help. Now, am I rich? Um, when I wrote the book, I had a net worth probably of about half half a million. Uh, still had a mortgage and kids were coming up to school and had all that ahead of me. And the business was not profitable. And uh, pre-COVID, you know, a couple of months ago, I had increased it to about $2.7 million. So compared to a lot of the business owners I know, I'm not all that rich. Like that's, that's the, the first step of rich. Compared to my employees or the vast number of Americans, I'm really rich. I, you know, I, I, I don't worry about uh, whether I'm going to, you know, pay my rent next month. Um, if I want to spend $20 on something, I spend $20 on something. Um, but I have the habits that I uh, developed over all those years of being fairly poor of just, you know, being a tightwad, basically. And a lot of that was driven by many, many years of, of, of a low income and or a highly variable income. And uh, so I don't think that that's all that unusual. I think that there's a lot of people who start in a small business and are able to develop a level of prosperity because they don't live large. Um, tidy conclusions are a triumphant ending? No. <laughs> I don't see any. The only conclusion I would, grow, I would draw from my story is get help. Don't stew in your own juices. When you're in trouble, start reaching out. And uh, I think that I've found that people are flattered to be asked for their opinion. And I certainly feel that myself, you know, like here you are interviewing me and it's like, I get to be Mr. Smarty Pants. And, and I like that. So don't assume that other people aren't willing to help you because it is a reflection of your opinion of their abilities. And uh, I've often found that, I mean, I've had some people say, no, they won't help, but I've had the vast majority uh, are dying to help, are happy to help, and will do whatever they can. So that's probably the uh, conclusion. And the triumphant ending? No, nothing yet. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to be challenged by this COVID thing. And uh, because the product that I make, big conference tables, isn't really the product of the moment. And we're going to have to ride this out. So I don't know what the ending is going to be. Um, that's the answer. Speak. So before we get into the book, and you said so many things, uh, like getting help, for example, we're going to hit that here shortly. You did get help, uh, I think, starting in that second half of 2012. And that's one of my numerous uh, favorite parts of the book. I would also say, Paul, you said tightwad. I picked up in the book that you're really very stewardly because you even talk about getting a new vehicle. You know, one of your cars about to break down. And I think, was it a van, a station wagon or a van? Yeah, we had, we had a 92 uh, Toyota Camry with 100,000 miles and a, and, a, and a Honda Odyssey, a 99. You know, like these were just old beat up family cars. And they both happened to die in the same week. And uh, I know where you're heading because at the end of the day, I just 
laid out cash. I didn't finance them. I didn't mess around. I didn't, you know, I was busy. I walked into a, into an auto dealership and said, I want to buy this car. And unspoken was, I want to be out of here in 20 minutes. And it didn't go that way. I was going to say uh, that first guy was an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't, I don't know what was going on. There's, there's idiots and there's business models, right? So that the, the person who walks in and plunks down cash may not be the most profitable client for them. And they may have a very, very good idea of who they want to do business with and what they want that transaction to look like. And I'm certainly not typical of, of car buyers. So I, I'm guessing that he was just like, this isn't, good, this isn't a good use of my time. And I may get heat from my boss if I close this deal the way he wants to do it. So, um, yeah, that's my guess. Or he's an idiot, one or the other. Before we get into your book, Boss Life, uh, talk a little bit about uh, the business, the origins of it. And by the way, I just want to interject quickly. I've been on your website. Your furniture is just, it's like, wow. And and I know that's just looking at pictures, Paul, but... Mm-hmm. Boy, the the furniture that you guys have created is just over the top. But can you well, talk? Thank you. Yeah, can can you talk about you know when you got started and and of course now you're going through COVID like we all mm-hmm. are. But just just walk us through your your business. What is okay. it? What do you do? And who are your customers? Yeah, um, I am the founder of Paul Downs Cabinet Makers, a company that I started. Uh, very shortly after I graduated college. And uh, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, graduated in 1985, and was on track to become an architect. Uh, But I had not completed the professional degree. And so prior to enrolling in graduate school, I thought I would work construction, because I thought that might be useful for an architect. And uh, got hired as a carpenter's helper to a gentleman who was always going on about how great it would be to be a furniture maker um, and uh, painted such a positive picture of that trade that I thought, oh, I'm going to do that. That sounds good. And I've always enjoyed working with my hands, although I had never made furniture. Um, but I, I'm a confident kind of person. So I thought, well, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll try that and uh, uh, set up a little shop with a couple of I inherited $5,000 from my grandmother that summer. And so I set up a little shop in in Philadelphia and got some books out of the library about how to make furniture and just started making furniture. I figured, you know, it couldn't be that hard. And uh, it's not actually, although the trick is the designing, you know, it's not how to do it, it's what to do. And then uh, the other trick, if you're trying to build a business, is how do you get in touch with clients? And so I built a bunch of stuff and took pictures of it and went back to my college professors and said, hey, I'm doing this now. And they helped me out to get in touch with some actual buyers. And then I was just very fortunate that I was able to get it going because it's not an easy business to start. It's nothing. There's no repeat with furniture, uh, particularly back in the 80s. You know, like if you could even find someone who was interested in doing something, it's not like they're going to buy three dining tables. They're just going to buy one. So you always have to be finding new people. And I realized that fairly early in the in a career. And uh, but the the tools available for a tiny enterprise to communicate with the outside world 
were very primitive. You had print advertising, and that was it, basically. And so it took me a while to get to the point where I could even afford print advertising. Uh, but then when I started doing that, then I was able to build a little business based in Philadelphia, Philadelphia clientele. And most of what we did was high-end dining furniture. Um, I'm good at design. I'm good at engineering. And I'm good at talking people into giving me a check. So I was able to build that company up to about half a million a year, six employees. And that's what we were doing, high-end dining furniture. And I had one client in 1998 who was a local architect. And after we'd done a table for him, he said, hey, I've got a client, a corporate client who needs a big boardroom table. And uh, I've got some drawings. Do you think you could build this? And I looked at the drawings. And said, yeah, I can build that. So we did. And this is a 25-foot table, 1998. And I take my very first digital camera, take a picture of it, and I put it up on my very first website, which went up in 99. And websites are all about dining furniture. And then there's one part of it that's like, oh, here's some other stuff we've done. And uh, this picture's up there. In 2003, Google takes that picture and starts returning it as the top search result to everybody in the world. That's brilliant. That's great. I didn't do it. It's just luck. And, you know, they could have chosen. There's plenty of people trying to you know, show big manufacturers, but they chose us. And so this all happened one day. Uh, a guy called me from South Dakota and said, hey, can you make me one of those boardroom tables? And I was, who the hell are you? And how did you find me? Because we were only la- advertising in a local Philadelphia magazine at that point. And it just the notion that someone in South Dakota would know, you know, that I existed. Uh, two days later, I'm on the phone with someone in Kyrgyzstan who's putting up an oil company headquarters. And a couple of weeks later, I'm getting a set of plans from an architect who's putting up a palace in Saudi Arabia. So, so and Paul, you are a genius. <laughs> no, I'm lucky. Now, the genius, to the extent that I'm a genius, it was realizing that these things are real. Like, wait a minute, th- these people keep calling. And We've gotten anywhere from three to 10 calls every day since then, you know, until COVID, it's really back down again. But it was a, an ongoing stream of people. And uh, what we had to figure out was like someone calls you up or e- emails you and says, can you do this? So like the next thing out of your mouth is the critical thing. How do you convince someone that you can possibly do this? And uh, we were fortunate that other tools were starting to emerge at the same time, particularly software programs that allowed us to design something and show a user what it would look like as if it was a photograph, as opposed to drawings and all the other ways we used to uh, convey information, because they're, they're very hard to understand. But if you, you know, we could use a piece of software and, and basically show them the table uh, with chairs around it and exactly as it was going to look. And then e- we start off just emailing those photographs to people. Uh, and lo and behold, they would buy from us. So um, someone sends you a check and you build it. And now what? So the other thing is uh, figuring out how to get that big item from Philadelphia to wherever it might be. And it could be literally 
I mean, it could be anywhere in the world, but for various reasons, we've decided to concentrate just on the North American continent, mostly because the customs is, is way easier. And uh, uh, so we had to figure out how do you build and pack and arrange for an installation so this large, delicate thing doesn't get destroyed on the way out or get destroyed by the installers while they're building it. And we were really, you know, the internet made this business. Uh, it allowed us to go from being a local business, concentrating on something where the market was about to get eviscerated by foreign imports into being a basically a continent-wide business that was doing something that was way more specialized. So instead of having to compete directly with everybody around the world, I have to compete with maybe 10 firms. And there, there's not that many people who know how to do what we know how to do. And of all those competitors, uh, none of them had the same story into the business that we did. So we were the internet guys. And what we found was that in the course of all these years that we've been approached by just an amazing range of people who either didn't have access to the old way of buying or just didn't care, you know, like they're going to go to Google first. And so that's allowed us to build up both a list of clients that's pretty impressive, but also a really wide range of experience in engineering and fabrication so that we have the answers to almost any technical question you could run into if you're trying to put together a big boardroom. And getting back to your comments on, <clears throat> you look at my website and you go, wow, that is actually the thing that drives people to want to use us, which is that they're putting together a room or a place where outsiders are going to come in and they want those people to just be blown away and fall down dead. And so uh, we go way beyond what's ordinary and what we offer. And that makes the business sort of interesting and fun. But, uh, you know, that's that's what we do. To me, you are the Cartiers of wood, woodworking. The Cartiers had a saying that don't imitate, create. And mm -hmm. Paul, when I look at your stuff, you're not imitating, you are creating. And I just think that's a, I just think that's, you look at your stuff, it's like, it's beautiful. Hey, one quick comment. So you talk about, you actually became really good at marketing, maybe accidentally, but so you had to learn the logistics, as you mentioned, but you also have to have people who can build and make those products. I've worked with one work woodworking firm uh, here in Missouri, and it is hard finding good skilled labor. Is that been hard for you? Is that continue to be hard? It was in 2012. It's probably before. Is it still after? Um, yes and no. Uh, in the olden days, what we did making residential furniture is sort of the sexiest kind of woodworking uh, in that we would have one person do a whole piece from start to finish, and it was a nice piece of furniture. So people were attracted to that. And we got to a point after the, after the first recession where we needed to become more efficient. We started to break break out the construction steps into more specialization. So it just really wasn't feasible to have one person build one table if that table is 180 feet long. And uh, so the roles became a little less more like what, what people think of as woodworking and 
became more like what's happening in in a factory, but not that much because we do a different thing every day. So it's still pretty interesting work. But what I found really made it possible for us to uh, get the best workers was to have the best work situation. So if you want to be a woodworker, uh, you're going to be able to choose from, you know, however many shops there are. And it it's always been important to me that my shop look like the best place to work. And uh, we've been not just in the physical plant, but it is very nice. You know, it's got like wood floors and big windows. And uh, but also we've concentrated in the last few years about really defining and building the culture. So it's a culture of respect and transparency. And it's a place where, you know, hopefully anybody would enjoy working or that there wouldn't be anything negative that's not, that doesn't have to be. Now, woodworking is, is a, a lot of repetition. There's, you're working in a, in a hot, uh, hard work. You're working with tools. There's a lot of dust. You have to wear dust masks all day and you got to lift things. And uh, it's way different from working in an office. It's, it's, it's physical work, but it's also craftsmanship and that you get to see the results of what you do right in front of you. And we also are very fortunate that we work with pretty cool clients. So, uh, you know, you're working on a table and you can see, oh, this one's going to NASA or this one's going to Coca-Cola or this one, you know, whatever. There's, we're, we're, it's pretty clear that it's not just a cookie cutter thing. Somebody really cares about what you do. And uh, they're, they're going to be looking at this thing they bought and they're going to be paying a lot of attention to it. And it's really important to them that it be good. So most people who want to go into woodworking want to be craftsmen. I mean, I would say they all do. And, and they, they want that sense of, I did a great job. I have high standards. And so uh, they like having a clientele that appreciates that. So when you add all that together, uh, then we have our pick, I would say, of woodworkers. And uh, so uh, if I hire the best people, it's not me. It's somewhere at the other end. Of, there's a shop that's struggling to find people, but it's not me. The name of the book, of course, is Boss Life. I mentioned before we got started, 4.6 average rating on Audible, 4.7 on Amazon. I feel like a little bit of a wheeze word idiot. I'm going to use that word for me. Paul, I read about a hundred and anywhere from a hundred to 120 books a year. And I just found your book uh, this summer. And it's like, where has this book been? It came out, I believe, in 2012 or before. No, no, it's 2015. Oh, it is 2015. Okay. Yeah. So, so but, it's but been you, exactly five years. I think it was this week in 2015. It's like, how come I, how did I miss this? Are you finding people like me? who just found it in 2019, who found it in 2018. Uh, are you finding that this book is still uh, yeah. gaining traction, not just after you wrote it? Uh, I can't comment on whether it's gaining traction, but the I, I continually get contact from people who've read it. I would say on average, uh, two to three a month. Now, there was a flurry when it first came out, because that's sure. how books go. There's some publicity and people buy it. But I continue to hear stories and... A lot of them are very moving to me uh, in that it's people who have never seen a business book that looked anything like their life and uh, had found the main 
lesson and comfort was just that they weren't alone. And it's interesting, too, that I hear from people all around the world. So maybe this is one of those books that, you know, it's going to the engine's revving now and it's going to get to be famous or, you know, maybe not. Maybe it'll slowly taper off. I don't, it doesn't really matter to me because I already know that that it's made a difference to a pretty large number of people. And that's kind of why I wanted to write the book. And, and I wanted to write the book that I'd never read myself. Um, I got, I, you know, I was asked to write a book after I'd been writing for the New York Times for a number of years. And it could have just been more of, you know, like a collection of columns or whatever. It's like, no, I want to write the book that that is about my life because I, it just that's the book I always wanted to read about somebody's business that wasn't a sexy business that nobody ended up being a billionaire at the end. It wasn't one of those stories where like, oh, yeah, we had some bad weeks and now we're all, you know, we're all set. It's not like that. It's like more like the businesses that that I suspected were out there where people just don't know what to do, but there's their, this is their life. And uh, that's how I felt. And I just wanted to try to convey that. And it turned out that really touched a nerve. So. Well, my prediction, this book will have a very, very, very long shelf life. Uh, I just, again, I, there's so many universal truths uh, in the book. Please tell me, Paul, except for let's throw out the year 2020. Please tell me you did not have a year similar to 2012 in 2013, 14, 15, or beyond. Please, I hope that's not the no, case. No, I, I, I can't. I did, actually. And 2013, the, the years af, right after the book were actually pretty good. But then one, the years 2016, 17, and 18 were quite difficult. And uh, a lot of that had to do with... Uh, again, the impact of my personal life on the business. So my son turned 21 in 2015 and was sort of done with school in 2016. And I mean, if you don't have a special needs kid, you probably don't know anything about this, but there's a big basic divide between the set of services that are available to, you know, quotes, school age children, which ends at the end of your 21st year and then adult. And there's a gap when you're trying to transition from one system to the other. And, and you have to line up a whole new set of supports, basically. And we fell into that chasm. So Henry arrived at home full time in 2016. And uh, someone had to keep an eye on him. And because he's big, and as we'll talk about in one of your other questions, he's volatile. Uh, a lot of that care fell on me. And um, so I had to have him, you know, I would get up at six in the morning, take him for a walk, feed him breakfast. And then I often ended up taking him to work with me. And, uh, and it was really, it was basically really hard to work. It was just almost impossible to actually work with this kid. And uh, because he would, you know, if he was okay, it was okay. But if he's not, he's really not like, it's, it's really hard to picture what this looks like, but six foot five, 300 pounds, uh, screaming at the top of his lungs, either attacking the people around him or, or slapping his own face as hard as he can. Um, it sounds like a murder and, and it can happen, you know, a couple times a week and it could be anywhere. And so 
if I had them at work with me, you know, all the all my employees would be extremely alarmed, and and, and it was just tough, and and it went on for for a couple of years, and uh, actually got to the point where my business group, which I, I was in a group at that time, you know, we were doing a session where I was presenting, oh, here's the company, and here's what I think was happening, and I was laying out. This was the spring of 2018. I was laying out the numbers and I was like, yeah, we had kind of a bad year last year. We lost a quarter million bucks and blah, blah, blah. But I think it'll be okay. And then I was about five minutes into it. And one of the guys said, Paul, shut up. Stop. You're about to fail. You're about to go out of business. You just don't see it. You've got to do something different. And these guys, basically, they jumped into trying to help me with Henry which they could not do. Like there was nothing anybody could do about that, but they, they at least got me to, to see it. And so that, that kept me from actually going under, but yeah, it was, you know, that those things can happen. And I think, again, that's something you rarely hear about with the, uh, with the, you know, I'm so rich, I'm so smart business book, which is how personal situations can actually destroy you. We just don't hear those stories because who wants to tell it after it's happened? And, um, you know, I was lucky that I had built a support group that was able to get me through that. And then the last two years were, were pretty good, uh, at least till COVID came along. So here we go again, you know, but, but I'm in a much better position because we're going into this with money and work on hand. And also I have a much better sense of how to manage a, a disaster because I've been through two of them so far. I love the book. So 2012 is the year you're focusing on each chapter, January, February, March. I like the way you started beginning cash. Uh, then at the end, you talk about what you spent, what came in. Here's my ending cash balance. Where did the idea come from, Paul? Well, I mean, the, the need to manage cash should be apparent to any business owner fairly quickly. Uh, but the, the idea for putting it in the book was that it's something you never see. Again, business books, people talk about success or their story. They, I can't think of a single one where they put the numbers on it. And people will talk about their businesses if it's going well or not. They never talk about their personal income. They never talk about, you know, like how much cash. In most businesses, the struggle is to get cash. Right. Like that's, basically it. And, you know, there's another level beyond that. Uh, there's a lot of levels beyond that, but that's the first hurdle that people who are starting in business run into. It's like, how do I, how do I have money? And uh, so I did not want to insulate the readers from that reality. And this is a, a, something I'd actually addressed when I was writing for the times before that was the idea of just bringing that into the conversation and when we did in the Times, we got such a tremendous response from people who are like, oh, my God, this is the first time I've ever seen anybody talk about cash flow in a business book and or in any kind of business journalism. And it doesn't really surprise me, too, because when you think about the the traditional way of thinking about cash flow is that it's just a weird report that you can run in QuickBooks that's actually pretty much useless the way they do it. And... Uh, and it's not really considered to be a thing like behind, 
you read about, say, United Airlines this summer, they say, oh, they lost a billion dollars last quarter. And I'm like, wow, how'd they pay for that? And uh, the, the, it just doesn't, it's not talked about in a way that makes any sense to a Main Street business. So I wanted to make sure I was talking about that because that's actually the main focus of my, my worries at that time. And of course, you bring in the personal aspect. We've been talking about Henry, your other son. Did your publisher give you some feedback or did you just say, I'm going to be transparent with everything I'm going to talk about in the office, outside the office? Was that all you? Was that your editor? Was that both? That's me. Okay. I mean, the the story of the book was that I was, you know, like through, through a, a sort of an incredible lightning strike series of events. I got hired by the New York Times in 2010 to blog about being a business owner. Uh, The premise when I approached them was that I was about to fail and I thought it would be useful to just record that. Again, the thing that nobody talks about, what happens when a Main Street business closes? What does that feel like? How do you do it? What do you have to watch out for? And so I was hired to tell that story, but it just didn't quite happen. Uh, but I started talking about these issues of cash flow and not as much about my personal life. Uh, but it, eventually I got around to saying, okay, I, I'm a Main Street business and I'm doing, you know, engrossing this much a year in revenues. And here's how much I took home. Because again, that was something that I was really curious about. And nobody ever wants to talk about that. Uh, Either they're taking home so much that they're afraid their employees will figure it out or they're taking home so little they're ashamed of it. And I was like, screw it. I'm just going to put my income in the Times. And uh, everybody warned me against it. And then nothing bad happened because you know, it was just information. And and uh, and so when the time came to write the book, I wanted to bring that transparency to it. Because, again, I was trying to write the book I'd never read and to talk about the thing that I'd never heard talked about that I knew everybody was interested in. And so uh, my, my publisher and editor to their, to their credit was just like, yeah, go for it. And uh, they weren't business book publishers. They were just book publishers. And I think that they recognized that this is actually a more interesting way to present this story. During the book, I would, I want to say around May, June timeframe, you talk about, well, I've got maybe 40 days of cash or three weeks of cash. You strike me as I'm listening to you as someone who's very even keeled. You even talked about in 2018, you lost a quarter of a million dollars. And it's like, Paul, do you get stressed? Do you you just have a way of handling uh, one day at a time? Absolutely. I mean, I get stressed as as anybody, but I think that the part of you know, my method of dealing with it, there's a couple of things. One, I'm a very routine oriented person. So I've been able to build my personal, uh, just sort of like what a day, what a week, what a month looks like so that it has some stress relieving elements, mostly physical exercise. Uh, You know, ride my bike to work, play soccer with some guys every Sunday, get to knock the shit out of people in that context. Uh, That's a stress reliever. But I'm also, I think that a lot of people say that having a routine is just a good way to be a human. And so uh, I have that. I also have a very fortunate with my wife that she and I have an excellent relationship. And that hasn't added to my stress. It's been 
a support to me. Um, but then the other thing is having perspective too, that uh, I spend a lot of my time uh, just trying to empathize with people who are in worse situations with me, uh, who don't have the same background and don't have the same resources available or read history and read about people who had to go through just appalling episodes, you know, like Russian history, Russian 20th century history, read that. And you'll never feel sorry for yourself again. Great point. Because yeah. I mean, it's just like, okay, I'm going to run out of money. The doors are going to close. That's not actually that bad. I'm not going to starve to death. Nobody's going to shoot me. They're not going to send me to a gulag or a concentration camp. You know, like, People go through so much worse than anything I'm going to have to encounter that if I let that take over my mindset, then I'm really a weak, stupid person. I need to have perspective. Very wise words. Yeah. I mean, people are going to develop their own set of resources to handle stress. Uh, I'm not a particularly religious person, but a lot of people are, and that's a way to do it. Um, As I said, there's a lot of different methods, and I've come up with a set that work for me. I want to do a little bit of a James Kramer lightning round. Uh, I don't know his show. It's an investing show on CNBC. Mm-hmm. So I, there, there are just some bullet points I want to lift out of your book. Uh, these can be take your time or we can go quick. But one of my favorite things, Paul, that you did early on is you would take the entire staff and just go through. Here's what the numbers were. Here's what we sold. Here's where we are. Here's the ending cash balance. Every business owner should be doing that, Paul. And I'm just, you're getting these high fives as I'm walking around my farm, listening to your book. And then as I'm reading it, it's like, well done. So is that something you did from day one? No, it took me 25 years to figure that out. And it was actually after I started writing for the Times and someone suggested that I start talking to my employees and I had never done it. And, uh, and so I was like, you know, I worry about cash flow every freaking day. And then I see somebody wandering around the shop, like throwing away a piece of plywood that cost $200 and they just screwed it up for no reason. And I think a lot of business owners see that and they get mad at that person and they don't connect the dots, which is that that person just doesn't know. Like until you tell them what what's important, like why would you expect them to 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 do it any differently. And and the basic principle that I came upon, which is if you don't give people information, they make up their own information and they make it up based on whatever is in their head. So if you don't tell them what's important, they'll decide what's important and they, it won't be the same things you think are important. I guarantee you that, but you, in order to, to tell people what's important in a credible way, you have to be willing to be, honest about a lot of things that people don't want to be honest about. And so that when I started talking to people about cash flow, I mean, the first thing was to just say, this is an issue. And that was mind blowing to all my people because they had some idea of how much, you know, like we're busy, we're selling this amount, but they would have, you know, like if you sold 2 million in a year, their assumption would be a million and a half went in Paul's pocket. And, you know, they never really thought about how money worked and they never really thought about the issues of uh, we're going to run out of cash unless we finish jobs, ship them and get paid. And 
we're going to run out of cash if we don't sell stuff because we collect deposits. And so having that conversation um, actually was a way to get them on board with all of the challenges I was doing. And the amazing thing was immediately I felt way less stressed and immediately they felt way more stressed, but it became useful as opposed to them just being stressed about not knowing what's going on. Now they know the problems and they were able to start to become my partners in solving them. Now, eventually uh, I got beyond just talking about cash flow, and this was a couple of years down the road when my own understanding evolved and I realized that what was really important was profitability on an accrual basis. Right. You know, I'm running a factory. And so cash flow is one thing. You know, if you run out, you're done. But uh, if you can be profitable on an accrual basis in a manufacturing business that isn't growing all that fast, then eventually the cash flow problem will solve itself. You know, like if you can ship the right amount and get paid for it and you're not trying to reinvest all that into rapid growth, uh, the cash flow will fix itself. And it did. And so now what I emphasize much more is the metrics that go around profitability on an accrual basis. Now we pay taxes on profitability on a tax on a cash basis, which is a different ballgame. Right. But you know, the accrual basis thing is pretty simple because at the end of the day, I can say to people, okay, we got to ship 360,000 a month and here's the list of jobs we're doing. And here's the number for each one and see what it adds up to. If it's more than 360. Yes. If it's less than 360, bad. Now, what are we going to do to fix that? So we're able to bring a very complex situation into very simple challenge for people. And then I can keep them updated on it all the time. And they can just see like, okay, we finished that job and that books this amount of revenue and we got this to do by then. And so it's really been uh, a much better way than just cash flow to, uh, to, to bring the employees into it because cash flow is variable. And it was the first problem I had to solve, but it wasn't the real problem. And so one of the things about this COVID situation is we go into it with a much better sense of what needs to be done and cash, because I've been building up cash for the last couple of years from having operated profitably. You were very, when I say you were, I'm talking in terms of the book, but very wise with the use of debt. What's your advice to other CEOs of businesses your size of maybe jumping in uh, feet first, head first with maybe too much debt? I'm not sure I'm really, a, 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 I would call it wise use of debt. I was fortunate in that my my debt was manageable, but there's a really long story behind the amount of debt that I had that I carried into the year of the book. And it has to do with a previous partnership that was weak going into the great recession. And uh, basically that partner of mine, we dissolved the partnership in 2010, but he walked away from a huge amount of money that the company owed him. And uh, that allowed us to, I mean, there's still debt on the books to myself and my brother, my father, who were the other investors. But uh, my former partner, Larry Ballin, basically walked away from half a million bucks. And that allowed us to get a lot of the benefits of bankruptcy without bankruptcy. And so that the debt 
that that we carry today is under my control. Like I, yes, I have bank line of credits and credit cards and all that, mm-hmm. but I don't really have to get to the edge with those people because we're we're still carrying this, you know, half a million or so on the books, and that's just, you know, how do you replicate that? Like I, I can't tell somebody to oh find a partner who's willing to to walk away from their investment. You know, that's the best move you could do. So I think that with debt, the the general lesson that I've heard from a lot of entrepreneurs is that they're just very conservative about, you know, pay down that personal mortgage as quick as possible. Don't run credit card balances. Uh, and you hear a lot of, of stories about like, kids who are starting up dot coms and are like, well, yeah, I got 12 credit cards and I max them all out one by one. And now I'm a billionaire. It's like, okay, you heard that story. You didn't hear the one about the people who got maxed out 12 credit cards and then lost everything. Right. Because that's way more likely to have happened. And the same thing with personal debt. You don't hear so much about the people who triple mortgage their house and, you know, blah, 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 and then failed. And we really have no idea what percentage of people who go to that playbook, how often it destroys them as opposed to hearing the, you know, the 5%, oh, that's a cool story out the other end where it turns out great. Um, But I would say that most of the entrepreneurs I know are extremely conservative about debt. They're not afraid to use it, but they're cognizant that it's somebody else having control over them. And a lot of entrepreneurs, and I would call myself in this group, really hate the idea of having someone have control over them. So they're going to try to get those shackles off as quickly as possible and so that they can they can run their own life. Sometimes we watch a great movie, we read a great book, great literature, and there's a character. Boy, I wonder how or she, what happened to her? Did, did they go off and live happily ever after? Well, in the book, you promoted Will. And I love that part of the book. I think that's getting to the second half. Mm-hmm. You, you promote a will. You even took him to one of your Vistage meetings. And so you're coaching him and mentoring him. Uh, how is Will doing these days? I don't know because he left the company uh, two okay. years ago. Okay. And, uh, and, you know, like if I was writing a follow-up uh, to the book, it would be interesting to see that story play out because – Okay, just to set up for those who don't read the book, at, I had uh, a, a guy who was in charge of my shop for many, many years, who was the best craftsman on the floor. And this is a really common mistake that I think a lot of small manufacturers make. They've got someone on the shop floor who's really good at doing the job. And they promote that person to be in charge of the other ones uh, because there's an inherent respect with being the best craftsman, Right. Everybody else looks up to that person because they're just really good at it. And we're just wired to respect that. So you think, okay, that person could be in charge. So I had this guy and he'd been running the place for 20 years, but he was actually terrible at being a manager. He did not like people. He did not care about people. He had no interest in whether they got better at their job or not. And he really wanted to minimize his interactions with all the people who were his subordinates. And that's a a tough school for new hires. And so we would hire people and they would sort of encounter that and they would either get through it or not, but it was a pretty high failure rate. 
one of the guys who got through it, because he was also a very good craftsman, is this young man, Will, who had a very different attitude towards the work and uh, sort of innovation and was someone who I could talk to much easier than my other guy. And so I promoted him at a certain point uh, and demoted the other guy. And that's chronicled in the book. And then after I promoted Will, I realized I got to change my game because I've fallen into a, a dysfunctional pattern with the other gentleman. He didn't like to talk to me. I didn't like to talk to him. So we just didn't. And then when I put a new person in, oh, I got to start being a manager myself. That actually worked out pretty well, mostly because Will was a vast improvement on the other guy. But after a couple of years of him being in charge, then some of his downsides became more apparent. And eventually they caused me to have to make a change again. And uh, so Will left the company and ostensibly to found his own company, not woodworking, but something else. And I promoted another person who has actually been great. And so that's been a big part of our success for the last two years is having the actual right person in charge of the shop. All right. So now I have this guy, Ryan, who is good at people and coachable. And I've become much better at understanding my role as a boss, and we're doing way better because of that. As I'm listening to the book, and again, I listened to it first, then read it. And by the way, the listening experience is outstanding. I, I've, I've never listened to it. I, I mean, I'm not a, I don't like to listen to books. I like to read them. And there's something about hearing somebody else's voice do your words that's actually I couldn't get beyond about 15 seconds. I was like, I now as the author, I never thought about that. I never thought about that. Well, as I'm listening, I'm thinking, Paul, Paul, you, we need to get you some help. Uh, you need to be around some other CEOs. And I'm thinking, I wonder if he's ever heard of Vistage. And, and, and then of course you end up learning about a Sandler a consultant through your Vistage group. So then all of a sudden, you end up going and get invited to Vistage. And I'm like, yes, yes, I'm excited to hear that. And then not only that, I think one of your your Vistage chair uh, recommended a sales guy uh, through Sandler. I'm just thinking. It, it was one of the one of the other members in the group. Okay, okay. Yeah. So looking back, good, good experience, uh, Vistage, good experience? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would say that it has been without a doubt the best like single move I made as a businessman, which was to get not only help, but I was extraordinarily fortunate in the quality of the group I, I was invited to join. And the, the other members of the group and my chair, Ed Curry, just have just, they've absolutely changed my life. Um, and, you know, the, the value of getting really good help is just that's what that's the last thing i say in the book is if you're stuck get help and if you don't know who to ask ask me and i'll at least talk to you and uh but having people who know you over a, a long-term basis and who don't really have anything at stake except to help you succeed that is the best how, how and it's, it's it can happen in various ways like vistage isn't the only thing 
but um, but I've had a very good experience with that. How, how long were you a part of the part of your group, or are you still a part of them? I'm still a part. Outstanding. Yeah. To, so it's been eight years now. And then after Sandler, I mean, I've heard about Sandler. I, I've been through another. I've been through two other sales training uh, courses and and content. And I went to Sandler's website. I'm thinking, holy cow. I mean, I know they're good. And they've got the name recognition, tons of content. Uh, I've read two of the books by the current CEO, Outstanding. So you you recommend Sandler as well? Well, I, I, I recommend here, – here's, here's how I put this. I thought I could sell because I could. I was actually pretty good at it. You know, I got my company from nothing to two and a half million a year because I can actually sell. And, uh, but I was trying to bring on some guys to do the selling for me. And we were using my methods and they weren't as successful as when I did it. And so what Sandler did for me was to just open my eyes to the idea that <clears throat> sales is a thing. And what Paul Downs knows about it isn't everything there is to know. And so we were able to get help from someone who was really broadly experienced with uh, all kinds of different businesses. And I don't, I don't really, you know, I'm not going to tell you that everybody who knows something about Sandler is good, but Bob Wax, the guy that we hired was great. And so he was able to look at what we were doing and, tailor his advice to our world, uh, but also get us to pay attention to the basic principles and a lot of stuff that we didn't know about or were ignoring and was extremely effective because of that. Now, we engaged him as a consultant for the next 18 months, but then didn't because I felt like he was really good at taking you from zero to something, uh, but he wasn't the guy to sort of do ongoing monitoring. Now, he's not a sales manager. He's a sales trainer. And so I engaged a consultant who still works for me to be that kind of like I think of as a batting coach, you know, like in a professional baseball team. Like you don't get on the team unless you actually know how to hit the ball. It doesn't matter. They still put you in front of the batting coach and have that guy look at every swing you take. Right. And then they there's just a continual feedback and that kind of management uh, is what we were looking for. And so that's what I have going now. And that allowed me to stop doing it because I'm a crappy sales manager. I mean, I'm good at, I could sell, but I couldn't manage. In the book, and, and now can I, is it okay if I pick a couple of things out that I didn't sure. see in the book? So yeah. as I'm as I'm reading, listening, listening, reading, I keep thinking, okay, he's brought in Vistage, he's got Sandler, I don't hear a lot of concepts about lean. And again, I'm not married to lean, but I appreciate some of the mindset of lean manufacturing. Just, just that whole, that whole concept of waste elimination in the business. Uh, have you all, have you all started implementing some practices of lean uh, since 2015 and beyond? Yes. Yes. And, and part of it was, you're looking at a snapshot of a year in my business in which the the main challenges are in the book. Um, and we actually focused a lot more on lean in subsequent years once those fires had been put out. Um, the other thing is that lean 
is, you know, you can, you, you implement it based on the business you're in right. and sort of the physical plant you're stuck with. And so that there's a lot of things that are easy to implement in, in a traditional assembly line, which are not at all. We're not that. So superficially we're a factory, but we're not in that there's no stream of stuff going through. Good point. <laughs> but we, we have in, in other years, uh, done a lot around visual organization and uh, pull systems for inventory, and just talking about talking about many of the concepts. But that just wasn't the year of the book, you know. Like I had, I was overwhelmed that year with other challenges. The other thing I was curious about is I was listening. A lot of your sales was taking orders, and I hope I'm not. I hope that's not a. I hope that that's not a critique or a negative comment, but you know, you do your Google AdWords, uh, people call in, you do your, your, your quoting. And by the way, you ended up having a really cool uh, video process of, of, of doing those quotes. But mm-hmm. did you guys ever get to the point to where you started looking at, here's who I would like my customers or clients to be? Sort of. Um, the, the, just having the two guys who I describe in the book, my, my sales people, do outbound calls, that doesn't work because those guys just aren't wired for it. Like that's a different person uh, to be cold calling all day. And what we, what we started to do in 2016 uh, and have been sort of struggling to do ever since is to establish a presence in the traditional sales channels for our product, which is primarily, okay, just to repeat for the, we make these big boardroom tables and most clients for most of history have bought those through a furniture dealer <clears throat> or through an architect or designer. And the companies which do that business are generally long established, very large. And there's a whole world of how they sell that, uh, that we knew nothing about. You know, we're, we're Australia. We, we were making our dining tables and Google dropped us into the, into the internet world. Nobody else was doing it that way. So we developed all these different methods to be the internet business. And when we tried to take those into the other channels, it's very puzzling. There's a lot of things that we don't know. The people who are in that traditional world particularly the furniture dealers, when we introduce ourselves to them, we say, oh, by the way, we sell over the internet directly to clients. They totally freak out because that's a huge threat to their business model. And so it's a difficult conversation to try to form those alliances because they're just worried that they're going to introduce us to one of their clients and that client is going to go around them and buy directly from us, which doesn't happen. But it's a reasonable fear. And so we've just struggled to to really you know get into that world. Now we were just making inroads on it in the last 18 months and then COVID came around and you know it's pretty much knocked the entire industry for a loop that uh, we're have we're struggling to keep our backlog up and to to sort of keep our sales levels up because people aren't buying this thing. And the furniture dealer, as far as I can tell, it's pretty much the same deal. Uh, nobody 
knows when everybody's going to go back to the office and nobody knows when they get there. Are they going to want to have meetings? You know, like, so there's just a huge amount of uncertainty and we're kind of on hold with our efforts in that, uh, in that respect. But that was always going to be a long-term project. It just takes years. And as I said, everybody, every one of my competitors who's, who we even know about is much larger and took them 25 to 100 years to build those relationships. And it's not something you can come in and do in just a year right. or two. There are going to be, because of this podcast, Paul, there are going to be a number of CFOs listening to this book, finance people, accountants. And as they listen, they're probably going to have the same question I had going through it two, three times. You talk a lot about sales every single chapter, and you've already kind of answered the question because you, when we're talking about cash versus accrual, I think I'm going to know the answer, but I didn't hear a lot about gross profit. Well, I'm curious what the gross margin or the contribution margin was on that particular product, even though it might've been a $140,000 sale or a $80,000 pro- or even a $16,000, $8,000 project. Uh, are you now focusing on gross profit, gross margin, contribution margin on a, yeah. okay. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that has been through Vistage. I just have a much more sophisticated understanding Got of it. the, of the finances. But the other thing is that, uh, you know, this is a custom business. So there's a ton of financial challenges. How do you price it? And what it comes down to is we have an algorithm uh, or a very complicated spreadsheet that I personally wrote uh, that sort of makes a prediction for what something should cost. And what that is, is it makes a prediction of how many hours it should mm-hmm, take to build mm-hmm. and how much the materials should cost. And uh, and then we have a way of keeping track of our performance on that. We have a custom database that allows us to see pretty carefully, you know, drilling down on each thing we build, how did we do? And the... The upshot is that the performance on any individual piece is extremely variable because you made a prediction about how long it'll take to build something that nobody's built before and nobody's going to build again. And there's all these different things that can happen in the process of building. Uh, you know, did you work out the engineering in the proper time? You got out on the shop floor. Did one of the machines break? Did Joe have a headache? You know, it's like there's so much. There's so much variation as you drill down that it's very difficult to look at data and work yourself back to an algorithm. And what we found is that the way we do it is to have an algorithm and then look at the aggregate performance against that algorithm. And that in those respects, we've been able to uh, sort of proof the algorithm and say, okay, it's not going to work for every job but it works well enough for all of the jobs that we can make some predictions. And so what I'm looking for generally is about a 10%, 10 to 12% net profit would be an outstanding result. Um, We, we try to hit uh, 60%, you know, cogs and 40% gross margin. And that seems to be a line that if we're below 60 or at 60, we're okay. If we drift over, we're not. And I aim to take home personally 8% of our revenues for, you know, every year. And some year I exceed that, but not, but that seems like a reasonable target for this kind of business. And that business, that is outstanding. That is outstanding. Do you have another book in you? 
Um, I've sort of tried to start writing a few, and uh, I think that the I was assured by my publisher a couple of years after uh, the book came out that just a sequel, there was no interest in that because it's been it's been the book that won't die, but it wasn't you know it wasn't a huge hit to start with, and and so the publishing industry relies on hits, right. and if it had been a hit, then yeah, I would have been you know it would have been. Game of Thrones or whatever. I would have done six of them by now, but uh, they didn't want a, a sequel. So I I thought about writing again, sort of recording those 2016, 17 years, because it would have been a sequel. It's like, oh, here we are, same characters back in trouble. And um, But the book that actually interests me now would be a book about ordinary success and failure not the extreme ends of the curve. But as I said, that, that story about, okay, what what kills Main Street businesses? I would really like to know what those factors are. And then thinking about the uh, my Vistage group members who are not people you're going to see in the business press. They're not going to end up being billionaires, but they're going to be end up in a pretty nice place. Like what lessons, what are the achievable things that someone who's just on that nice side of success, what are they doing that you could easily translate to the people who are about to fail? Like talking about the middle of that bell-shaped curve, both sides of it, that would be an interesting book to me. And I don't really have time to write it now. And I think that there would be a research component to it that would take some time. You know, like maybe the best way to do it would be to go, you know, sell the business in five years and then go get a PhD and write it as as some kind of research project to just see what what's really going on. You know, you may find out that the the number one cause of, of small business failure is medical, right? You know, everybody's going along and they're sort of chugging along and then someone has a heart attack and then it's all over three months later. Like you, nobody knows, right? Nobody actually knows what kills businesses. And I would like to, I think that would be interesting to to find out. Another idea, Paul, and maybe this would not have a wide uh, readership. I know I would certainly read it, but even being a business owner with a special needs child, I mean, as I'm reading through your book, and again, I'm not trying to embarrass, I'm thinking Paul and his wife, they are heroes. They are heroes and not, I mean, you're in a situation where you can handle that. Now you're going to say, well, Mark, I love my children, so it's not a big deal. But for readers like me, it's a big deal. And I admire and respect what you've done. So that could be an idea. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly accept the, the, the admiration because my wife and I have worked hard to, to maintain our family, but we were also uh, lucky in so many ways. And, and we've also benefited from, the level of support that the government gives us. So, uh, you know, luck. Uh, we had twins. And so that when we had this child who's extremely challenging, and we had another child who wasn't extremely challenging. And I know a lot of special needs parents who, who have a child and don't have that other child. So that all they have is the one who's challenging. And they just don't have the the sense of of joy that comes from the ordinary arc of seeing your children developed. And I had two other children who were fine. And so we we weren't 
swallowed by the entire special needs world. Um, and then uh, there was a certain amount of family help that I was able to, to get. Uh, there were some critical moments in Henry's story when we needed access to a lawyer or we needed access to a doctor. And I had the resources to get that help, even though I couldn't have afforded it myself. And then I've got to give a huge shout out to the federal government because they funded his education uh, and they fund his daily life today. And it's expensive. His care today costs more than $900 a day. Wow. And uh, that money comes from the federal government through the state of Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be in business if, if, if I had to try to, I mean, I had him at home and tried to do it myself and it was killing me, frankly, and killing the business, certainly. And so that having that level of support uh, from somebody who's got truly deep pockets is what allows people like me in my situation to succeed. And I think that um, it should not be taken for granted. Uh, I've met politicians who are, you know, like, why do we need to be spending this money? Like, if you're going to spend money on something, spend it on alleviating the misfortune of your citizens, because this is just bad luck. And and I'm happy that I can accept that aid with the knowledge that anybody who's got a kid like Henry qualifies for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that I'm not the only one. It's not just a, a question of my background and privilege. It's a question of the government doing the right thing. You are on CFO Bookshelf. Not only that, Paul, you are probably elevating the show because of your story. Uh, because of that. I, actually, can I break in and say one more thing? Yes, sir. So about, about autism. Okay, I got an autistic kid. Everybody on earth has something. And so I don't think that I stand out, that every business owner, you've got, you know, whatever, the, the, the kid who falls into drugs or the brother-in-law, you know, like you name it. There's nothing special about my problem. Like, but it, a part of what I was trying to do was just say, that matters. You know, like I didn't have the resources to ignore it. There's no way I just pay somebody a check and Henry disappears from my life. And that's common, I think, to way, to many, many, many business owners and you know, like everybody, everybody in adult life, you're going to be thrown challenges. And this is what it looked like for me. And this is how I dealt for it. And what the only thing I want you to see from that is, you know, I had challenges too. And I hope that, that, that those who have those challenges try to get help, but there's no guarantee. I know many business or people that we met in the special needs community who were dealt something that was way more difficult than Henry. Like Henry's not easy, but he's not the most difficult by a long shot. And I've seen it absolutely destroy people. And there was no, like if, if, if I'd had their kid, I would be destroyed too. Like you just can't, can't uh, pretend that it's, you know, I'm going to struggle and it'll all be okay. It's not like that. The reason I'm, if it appears I'm making a big deal of this, Paul, it's because two of my kids had Terry Walden as a teacher. They adored her in high school. And Terry had, and Terry and her husband, Kevin, have a son who is autistic. And Terry had a vision and a dream, and that was to start uh, a school system that could teach young men and women on the autism spectrum. 
and it was called Encircle Technology. She's no longer a part of that. And so that's just why any parent, anyone associated uh, with with any young men or women on the autism spectrum, I just I I personally elevate them mainly just because of, of that background. I used to be on their board of directors as well, mm-hmm. and, and so it's hard for me not to uh, tend to elevate, especially parents. I, I just well, I thank you for that. But as I said, there's others who have children who present much understood. more difficult challenges, and and those are the real heroes because they they're still alive. I mean, I could tell you stories, but there's why, why does God give us, why do they mess with people this way? And, and a child is born that just presents an un, you, you can't win. And these people exist and there's nothing much you can do, but tolerate it. But there's no guarantee that the right attitude or even the right resources are going to make that situation better. So because this is CFO bookshelf, do I get to ask you, Paul, what what do you read? And by the way, don't be embarrassed. Some people don't have time to read or they listen, but are you, are you a book reader? I'm a big book reader, but I'm not a big business book reader because uh, most business books that I've ever picked up, you could read the introduction and then throw it away because there's a, an idea or two. And then someone's got to come up with 400 more pages in order to make it look like it's worth 25 bucks. And so... I got tired of that. And then also, uh, there's a huge number of business books that I said really concentrate on the outliers in terms of success and just didn't feel like, you know, like what do I need to know? Okay, if, if, if I was Steve Jobs and I had that particular set of lucky bounces through my life, sure, I'd be there, but that doesn't help me. And um, But as I said, what I do read, I read a lot of history uh, so that I have perspective of my own troubles. And I read a lot of fiction uh, because I think that's a good way to get insight into the different ways one can be a human being. Agree. And, uh, uh, you know, my take on human diversity is that the species contains people who are specialized for different situations, and that's our special sauce as a species. So most of the time, being a liar and a thief isn't going to help you much. But when the Gestapo knocks on your door and you need to lie your way out of it, you survive and the, the honest person doesn't. So that we have this whole range of different people who are optimized for certain things and maybe not so good at other things. And that's humanity. You just got to deal with it. And the the way that plays out in business for me is uh, as a sort of a, a counter to that to the advice you hear often these days of only hire a players uh, because my thought is a uh, somebody could be an a player in one respect and be a D minus in a lot of other respects. Great point. And, mm-hmm. and B most people aren't a players by definition, right? Most people are rel- relatively ordinary people. And you know, like why do we even have an economy if we're not trying to provide for everybody some level of welfare and, and comfort and dignity. And so uh, that's, that's how I see, I mean, I don't think I myself as an A player, maybe an A minus player, B plus player, but uh, uh, certainly the people who work for me, many of them are ordinary in many ways and certainly ordinary in where they came from. And I don't like this idea that you can just discount those people 
and you know build a business by by eliminating most people and most abilities and my idea is to take you know true c players like a truly average person and forget great inflation most of us are c players and if we can get a b plus performance out of c players i think we'll be okay and i just want to make sure that everybody feels respected and valued that's so that's how these that's how that plays out. We are so much on the same page. Brilliant. Hey, can you at least a couple of titles uh history? I, I like history too. I love uh memoirs, autobiographies. Are there a couple or is there or is there a time period that you like more than the other? Well, uh, if anybody feels like uh feels like it, the 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 book which I think is most useful in terms of laying out where you are compared to where the worst human experiences is a book called Life and Fate by Vasily, what's his name? Uh, Grossman. He's a Russian, he's a Russian journalist and he was a reporter during World War II. And he wrote a novel, which is basically the equivalent of War and Peace for World War II. Okay. And it's just an astonishing book in laying out what happened in Russia in, in the war. Uh, both in terms of interacting with the Germans, but also what it was like to live under Stalin. And if that doesn't, if that doesn't cheer you up that you're not any of those people, <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's, it's one of the classic books of all time, I think. And it's just, it's just people who read it never forget it because it's, it's amazing. Um, other books, you know, I'll, I'm going to give you another, another favorite, uh, which is not, a book that is anything other than kind of a fun book, because a lot of the a lot of the reason uh, that I read is to just 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 take a break. You know, like I don't I don't believe that I have to be stuffing myself full of knowledge uh, every every second. And wait, I gotta make sure that I get this right. So, the book is called The Long Ships, and it's a story about a Viking. It's written by a guy named Franz Bengtsson. He's a Norwegian, uh, B-E-N-G-T-S-S-O-N. And he wrote this book in the 1943. It was published, probably written a little before that. But it's a, just one of the best, you know, ripping adventure yarns you'll ever come across. And it's interesting in that it has very strong female and non-white characters, too. This guy is a Viking, and he's actually traveling all over. The, he travels from Africa into Russia, and, and it's just a great story. So if you're looking for something that you just want to enjoy it, uh, try that one. Definitely. You- and in terms of business books, I'm just trying to think of any that I've really liked. I'm sure that you're, you probably have heard plenty of those from from your other yes. podcast guests. You saw my questions ahead of time, and this is a question. It's one of my favorite questions. Uh, going back to one of our authors, uh, Liz Wiseman, we asked her, mm-hmm. what would be your TEDx talk? And she had to think about it. And she also said, I've never had anyone ask me that question. So, Paul, that question stuck. So if you're doing a TEDx talk at your local uh, university or community college, what would that talk be on? And by the way, it could be nine minutes. It could be 18 minutes. So it could be one of the shortened versions. 
Uh, I'm, I cannot wait to hear your answer. What I would actually talk about would be that idea of, of ordinary success and failure. And I think it would be very interesting, as I said, to know, like, what are the top 10 reasons Main Street businesses go under? And what are the top 10 things that, that are achievable for someone who's got, you know, 700000 a year in revenue to make sure that you're succeeding and on the right path? And I would love to do that talk. That is outstanding. And you would hit it out of the ballpark. Paul, I, I wish we could keep going on. This has been outstanding. I, I was actually a little shocked that I'd be able to get you on because when I went through this book, I want to say I was through March and I'm thinking... I want to talk to Paul. I want to talk to Paul. So I can't, I mean, I'm just, I'm just beside myself that you said yes. And not only that, Paul, (laughs) you, when you got, I gave you my questions ahead of time, you even came back and said, I'm going to block out 90 minutes. I'm thinking, wait a minute, he's busy. He's got a business to run. He's got more important things to do. So I'm just, again, I'm thankful. Well, let me comment on that too. When when I w- was hired to write for the Times, what I realized is that one of the most valuable pieces of luck I've been given uh, is just the opportunity to share the story. And that I'm, you know, I, okay, I'm busy running my business, but that's just for me and my employees. And that I've heard over and over again from readers who are like, "Wow, when I heard your story, it made my life better," even if I didn't do anything else. You know, just like to hear that. So I always make time for people because people have made time for me. And uh, I keep hearing that it's valuable to hear this information. And so I'm always happy to share it. And I hope that it does make a difference to someone that there's some business owner out there who feels less lonely and less isolated and feels that they have someone they can reach out to and then goes find that person. So that's why I do it. Well, Paul, again, thank you very much. My pleasure. Really nice talking to you. That was amazing. And again, I want to thank Paul for that interview. Paul, let let me just brag on him just a little bit. Paul shows up early. He even sticks around after and asks me a few questions. I I hope it's okay for me to say this, but I feel like I've gained a friend. Uh, Paul is the kind of guy to where if I were to pick up the phone and just chat with him, I think it's almost we'd pick up where we left off. Nice guy, very giving, gracious with his time. And of course, I could say that with every guest we've had so far in this new show that we launched back in the, when was it, back in March. And if you're listening to this two years down the road, I will say March 2020. But Bruce, here's why I think shows or interviews like this are very, very important. When I started working outside of KPMG, I worked for a mid-sized business. We had our own in-house law staff. We had our own uh, risk management team. I mean, we were big enough to have those types of resources. So when I started my practice, my consulting practice in in the year 2000, I could not relate to these CEOs who were struggling even to make payroll. I'm thinking, man, you should have a million dollars in the bank or $500,000. What's your problem with making payroll? Uh, It's like, get with it. So I just was not very sympathetic toward small business CEOs. So I want to ask you a quick question before we wrap up, Bruce. When you you worked in a Fortune, was it 200 or 500 uh, organization? Uh, Fortune 23. Uh, excuse me, Fortune 20, oh, <laughs> Fortune 23, okay. Yes, thank you very much. So when you went from Fortune 23 to Fortune 1, 
uh, the physician job board uh, niche. And by the way, you are number one. And I will argue that with anyone, anyone, and I'll win that argument. But when you went from Fortune 23 to a small business, that was easy, right? No, uh, actually just the opposite. Uh, there, you know, when you're, you know, when you're in a, you know, an extremely large corporation and you're one of 30,000 there, there's, you know, there's a lot of different things that there's a lot of different focuses, um, but there's also a lot of different resources and your focus is going to be much more narrow. Whereas when you go to a, you know, a, an Inc 5000 company, um, then you've you've got to be you've got to keep your eye on a whole lot more balls. And at the end of the day, as a, a senior role in a small company, it's it's it rests solely on your shoulders to you know. In, in my case, to ensure that the the organization remains financially healthy, and that's that's a that's a lot different. Uh, that is a lot different challenge than you know than complying with. Uh, SEC regulations complying with different government regulations that apply to to large publicly held companies. It's it's a it's a totally different deal. It's not easy. It's different, and that's why we should read books like this. Now, if you are a small business financial leader, it's good. I guarantee you, because as I'm walking my laps, you know, it took me about a week to get through this. I'm thinking, Paul. Why didn't you, I mean, I was talking to myself, Paul, why didn't you do this? Or Paul, did you do this? And some of that came out in the interview and that will happen whether you listen to it or read it. By the way, if you do listen to it, it's, it's a good, it's a good experience, not dull, not dry, but I, again, you will be able to relate to it if you're a small business financial leader, but if you work in big business, there may be a day you'll, you'll do like Bruce, you'll work your way into a small privately owned business and you're going to need books like this because you can't come in with that snob attitude like I did 20 years ago and expect, Hey, things are going to be just like it is or should be in big business. Small business and big business are really different, aren't they? Really different. And you, you, you're, you couldn't be more correct that you you can't come in with this. I'm, I'm from a big company and I've, I know all this different stuff. It is different. And you have to evolve yep. if you're going to be successful That's going good. from a larger business to a smaller one. But I would also say if you're if there's an element of fear to doing that, I think that in the end you will regret not taking the chance. If you think like if you feel like it's something for you and you're just not sure, I think you have a much better chance of regretting it if you don't take the chance. That's rich. Can I quote you on that? You can. We will quote that. That will be in the show notes. That's outstanding, Bruce. Hey, Bruce, Bruce, buddy, uh, good uh, hearing from you this week. Uh, take us home. Mark, always, uh, always enjoy our time together. Everybody out there, stay safe, stay well. Please practice love and empathy, and we'll talk again soon. 